Years ago, a pastor was uh, in the middle of a series that he was preaching about, a six or eight week series, and uh, in the process of that series, he was stepping on people's toes and then, uh, figuratively speaking, slapping them in the head with the Bible. Does that communicate for you? To the point that the crowd was getting beat up pretty much uh, over the course of that series. And uh, one lady in the church decided she'd had enough of that after about three weeks. And so she started sending him letters critiquing his sermon. And she was critiquing him on things like ending a sentence with a preposition and uh, those kind of things. How many times he said, and... Uh, through the course of his sermon, those kind of things in the letter. And the first couple of letters that he got, he was not really sure how he should take them. And he wasn't really sure if he should write her a letter back or if he should uh, say something about it from the pulpit or what he should do. And he prayed about it and finally decided uh, a course of action. About five weeks into the whole process, he received a letter. It looked like it had to be from the same lady although there was nothing on the envelope itself that identified who it might have been from. He opened it up and he pulled the letter out and it was one word written diagonally across the paper to fill the entire paper with five exclamation points at the end of the word. The word was fool, F-O-O-L. On Sunday, the next Sunday after that, he got up and he began his message this way. Through my ministry, I've gotten all kinds of letters from all kinds of people. Some people like the messages, some people don't, some are encouraging, some are not. Uh, And I've gotten letters to those effect all through my time as a pastor. And often in those letters, uh, people have forgotten to sign their name at the end of it. The body of the letter is there and it says what it says, but they just either forgot or just chose not to sign that letter. And he said, this week, for the first time ever... I got a letter where somebody signed it, but they didn't have anything to say in the letter itself. (laughs) Matthew chapter 7, go with me there. We make an abrupt turn in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus has been dealing with those parts of us that are attached, that is attached to stuff. And in Matthew 6.33, we saw that he says, But seek ye first the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, and all of or and His righteousness, and all of these things will be added to you. He's been talking to us as His disciples about our relationship with stuff. And in chapter 7, it is an abrupt term that Jesus makes here. And He moves us to this basic truth. A critical spirit costs us in many ways. Matthew chapter 7, beginning in verse 1, Jesus says, Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is holy. And do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. This is a passage of Scripture and a basic biblical point 
that I think is one of the most misused and misinterpreted during our day. You see, part of the reason for that is we live in a time that sociologists have labeled the time of the postmodern person, the postmodern era. Now, without going into all of the specifics of what that is, one of the things that is a marker of this day and age is that we have a whole society that believes that you can make up your own truth. There are no standards out there. I can make up my own truth. You can make up your own truth. And as long as it works for you, then that's okay for you. That's the prevailing attitude of our day. Well, one of the problems with that, other than the fact that it's just wrong, is, but by the way, it is out there anyway, whether it's right or wrong. But one of the problems that that presents is that when we come as Christian people and we say this book represents the truth of God, it is timeless, it is eternal, it applies to all people, that cuts squarely against the grain with our society and our culture. So the cry of our culture is when you or I take a stand on what we believe Scripture says, the cry of our culture says, stop judging me. Well, let's talk about that this morning because Jesus talks about that. Jesus talks about it to his disciples. So let's make sure that we hear it from the correct angle this morning. So let's just start off by looking, first of all, at what he actually says, what he doesn't say. The passage begins in verse 1 with a very simple statement. But it rings across the ages for us. And challenges us at the basic point of living. My translation says, judge not. The Greek very uh, literally translated here is, stop judging. It's not that judge not is a wrong translation. It just that it misses that part where Jesus is saying to his gathered disciples on the side of that hill, stop what you're doing. Well... Let me just ask you, let's just be real honest and let's come to pastor scripture like we always should, which is as honest as we can about ourselves. Is it possible not to judge people? And beyond that, is it advisable not to judge people? Let's play this scenario out. Let's say in, let's see, I usually preach about 10 minutes. Um, I'll just say if you're listening, okay. So let's say in another hour and a half when I finally get through this morning. You leave here and you go home and you get lunch on your way home and you sit down and you settle in to watch the latest version of the Cowboy Collapse. And you're about in the third quarter of the Cowboys proving that they're a great high school football team when when there's a knock at your door. And you go to the door and you open it up and standing in front of you is a guy who's six foot four, weighs about 430 pounds. Looks like he hasn't showered in maybe six weeks. He hadn't shaved in maybe six months. Let me just stop for just a second. Immediately, you've already made a judgment about that person. Back to my question. Is it possible for us not to judge people? And even still, is it Advisable for us not to judge people. Did Jesus just miss it here? Back to the guy. 
So in talking to him, you come with, just from what you see, you've made a judgment about who he is. And he shatters that when he says, hey, I heard that you were a Christian. I'm a Christian too. And I was on my way home from church, and I had car trouble just up the road, and I wonder if you could help me. Now your judgment might be, oh, now what am I supposed to do? But he goes further because you say, sure, I'll be happy to help you. Would you like to use my phone? I'll bring it to you as opposed to come in and use it. But he says to you, I don't want to borrow your phone. I want to borrow your car. Now, what's your response to that? (laughs) No way. Why? And the answer is because you've made a judgment about who he is. I'll submit to you that it is, well, I don't throw this term around loosely, but I think I want to use it here. It's impossible to go through life without making judgments. So what is Jesus saying here, if that's the case? Is it okay for us to exercise good judgment? Is Jesus saying here no to judgments totally or is he just saying no to bad judgments? What is he saying with this passage? Now, there are those people who come to Scripture and they look at it and they interpret it so literally without ever asking the questions that are behind it that they make some decisions that ultimately are counterproductive to what Jesus intended. This is a place that we could easily do that. So let's get the counsel of the whole Scripture And I'm not going to take the time to give everything in Scripture here, but let me just give you a few representative passages of Scripture that shed light on this one. And actually, one of the ones is in this very passage. Did you notice verse 6? Jesus says in verse 6, Do not give dogs... Now, time out. Just a second. Now, you think he's talking about real dogs or people? Is this a metaphor or is this a literal thing? Do not give to dogs what is holy. I've been called a dog in my lifetime. I've been called a pig in my lifetime too. But I don't want to bring my dating life into all of this stuff. So let's go. (laughs) Do not give dogs what is holy. How can you determine whether you do that or not without making a judgment? Verse 1, don't judge. But verse 6 implies, if not just flat out states, that you have to make a judgment. In your dealings with people. Same thing with the pig statement there. If that's not enough for you, look at verses 15 through 20. That's just right across the column in my Bible. So let me read a little bit of that. Beware of false prophets. Time out. How do you know a false prophet? Hello? Hello? How do you know a false prophet? And the answer is, well, he's going to give us some suggestions here. But the answer is, you have to make a judgment. He says, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing. By the way, in Bible school last year, wasn't somebody wearing sheep's clothing around here? I think some of the staff were, but that's another story. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruit. How do you inspect fruit without making a judgment? We could go on with this little walk through Scripture. I'm not going to take the time to go there, but we could go to uh, 
Matthew chapter 10, verses 11 through 15, where Jesus is sending the disciples out. And he says to them, when you go and you go to this particular place, if they receive you, fine. If they don't receive you, then you shake the dust off of your feet as you leave. There's a judgment attached to that. A discernment, a decision, what's truth here? Where do I stand in the midst of this? If that's not enough for you, Matthew chapter 16 and verse 6. We could go on and on. Surely there's more to this passage than just what meets the eye in a casual reading of verse 1. What is Jesus getting at? Stop judging. Well, maybe let's step back a little bit. And let's take this passage for itself and see if there's not some clues there as to what Jesus is communicating for us. First of all, and I say this just kind of in a nutshell, this is a condemnation or a criticism that is rooted in self-righteousness. That's what Jesus is talking about here. A condemnation or a criticism of somebody that's rooted in our own Self-righteousness. I loved after the early morning service today. That when I finished it and I was on my way out, one of the ladies in our church caught me and she said, Brother Mark, I just want to tell you, I really appreciated that message this morning. I just wish my husband would have been here to hear it. (laughs) Now he was standing right there with her, okay? So it was a joke all in all. But let's take that. And let you see inside of what this statement says. It is that condemnation or criticism. My husband needs to hear this. That's based in self-righteousness. Because I don't need to hear it. You get that? But if we're going to really be honest, we have to, have to say criticism and condemnation are huge parts of our lives every day. We find it... You, you can't even watch the news the national news at least, for more than about 30 seconds at a time without seeing that there's condemnation and criticism all through that part of our lives. You find it in the office where you work. You find it in family gatherings when you get together. There seems to be in our conversations that thread of criticism and condemnation that's just so much a part of it that we accept it as normal. Some of the great... Um, sparring verbally of history occurred through a guy named Winston Churchill. Most of us know who he is. And Lady Astor. Now, she was one of the mucky-de-mucks, and he was one of the mucky-mucks in English society. And uh, he was known to be something of a drinker. Translate that as some people thought he was a drunk. And Lady Astor had no use for him because of that and some other things. And they constantly got into these verbal sparring things that uh, are laced with criticism and condemnation, but they are incredibly funny, to me at least. And maybe I just have a sick sense of humor, I don't know. But for instance, one day he had been drinking and into the evening and he was, uh, uh, he was lit. And he was on an elevator and here comes Lady Astor with all of her prim and proper edness. And she gets on the elevator, she takes a look at him, smells him, sees him, and she's immediately incensed with who he is. And she says to him, Sir Winston, you are drunk, in a very condescending kind of way. To which he replied, My lady, you are ugly, but I will be sober in the morning."
Apparently, you have a sick sense of humor too. <laughs> Condemnation, criticism. Another time, she said to him, Sir Winston, if you were my husband, I would put arsenic in your tea. To which he replied, My lady, if I was your husband, I would drink it. Condemnation, criticism, laced into the fabric of our day. So much so that we just consider it to be normal and we just move right on with it. And as Christian people, we often just kind of join right into the process. Criticism and condemnation that is rooted in self-righteousness. Here's another statement for you. It comes from one of the commentators that I was reading relative to all of this. Here's what he says. It is the self-righteous, highly critical person who is particularly eager to correct the faults of others. That's who Jesus is talking to, he says. One more time. It is the self-righteous, highly critical person who is particularly eager to correct the faults of others. You ever see that? You ever see that person who so in their mind has it all together enough that they can step in and solve the problems of the world? Well, let me rephrase that. Identify the problems of the world with no attempt to solve. Constantly castigating the person who is the subject of their vocus. Jesus says, stop. That. You see, at the heart of what Jesus is talking about here, and it's what builds this up from the underneath, it provides the stability for the whole discussion. What is there for us is this religious double standard that marked the day for them, and by the way, I would say marks the day for us in American Christianity. That religious double standard. You remember what Jesus said, the thesis of this whole sermon that he's given to us in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, over in chapter 5, verse 20. But unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you'll not enter the kingdom of heaven. And by the way, that statement in itself includes a judgment. That Jesus looked at the situation and he said, these people who are the religious muckety-mucks of your time, if your righteousness doesn't get past what they're doing, you don't have a chance with God. That's pretty judgmental, don't you think? But you see, that's the thesis of the whole sermon. Everything that he says wraps around that statement because what he does from there is he begins to lay out what the life of surpassing righteousness looks like in you. And so now he comes to this discussion. After dealing with where we focus our stuff and our passions are tied to stuff, Now he says, and as you deal with other people, don't be guilty of a double standard in which you look at yourself, but only casually, only in a jaded sense, and then you turn and you look at others and you criticize and condemn. Stop that, he says. You want to really get a good picture of this. I'm not going to take the time to do it now, but you can go over later today to Matthew chapter 23. Starts in verse 2 and goes through, I think, the rest of the chapter. 
Time after time, Jesus looks at those religious leaders, the scribes and the Pharisees, and he says to them, Woe to you! That's a very intense statement for them to hear. Woe to you. In other words, it's not just shame on you. This is loaded with justice. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, because... And then time after time, he gives them what they say and what they do, and they don't fit. The religious double standard that becomes the way we castigate other people. At this point, judgmentalism and critical thinking, and not, I'm not talking about being able to analyze, but to criticize, moves to center stage for us as his disciples. And we have to ask ourselves, am I guilty? Now, I do want us to look at what Jesus says about it. We're talking about what's tied to it, and he's not obviously what we've seen from Scripture and what we find in this, just the language of it. He's not saying to us, you should never make any kind of judgment. The people in the world of our time, the postmodern era, they will say to us, you can't judge me because you say this is wrong. That's not what Jesus is talking about here. What is he talking about? How do we wear this for ourselves so that it can change us from the inside out as we've been even singing about today? Look at verses 1 and 2. The admonition is there. Now, we've looked at that. I want to go now to verse 3 through 5. Because what we find now in verses 3 through 5 is a graphic, ludicrous example with two parts in it. First of all, there is the diagnosis. That's in verse 3. And then secondly, there's the solution. That's in verses 4 and 5. He diagnoses it and he solves it for us. Verse 3, why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye? Now, let me pull that down for us. As best we can tell in the Greek language, that word means something along the line of a speck of sawdust. Okay? Very, very small. By contrast... Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but you do not notice the log that is in your own eye? If For that word, imagine, if you will, driving up and down the road. I think I've seen this between uh, here and Kuntz, uh, even before the Y up here. But uh, somebody cuts down a tree, and what you get is a stump that's bigger around than you can wrap your arms around it. That's the picture here, except it's not just the stump. It's the entire log. Um, I like the way my wife historically has taken this. In one translation, uh, it talks about a plank. Okay? Uh, and from time to time, she's... Um, how should I say this nicely? Um, I've been accused of having a plank eye before. Can I say it that way? You understand what that means? It's this passage. You're trying to help somebody get a piece of sawdust out of their eye, but you got this board sticking out of yours that gets in the way. Now, why would Jesus say it that way? Because it's so ludicrous, it's so ridiculous, that in the real world, nobody would even try to do that. But obviously, in the religious world, it's just part of how we do stuff. So he says in verse 1, stop doing that. I, I try to carry this a little further. Maybe a, a modern analogy of what he's getting at here. 
from my own struggles, okay? I have terrible vision. And what I mean by that is, and a matter of fact, I think I even told you that when I was in the fifth grade, I uh, found out that I needed glasses. Well, since then, uh, my vision has, <laughs> has been just gotten worse. I was about 25, 26 years old in seminary, and I was having trouble reading, so I went to the eye doctor. And, of course, I've been wearing glasses since I was in fifth grade, but I went to the eye doctor, and he made me wear bifocals. Now, as a 25-year-old guy, I thought, he's trying to, he thinks I'm old. Well, and then the next eye doctor after that put me in trifocals. And I thought he just did that to be mean to me because he knew that I felt like I was getting dumped on. I have terrible vision, okay? Now, I started wearing contacts a number of years ago, and that presented a problem for me. Because my job requires a lot of reading. But my vision is such, with astigmatism and other problems, that that's why, by the way, I had to have bifocals and then trifocals. And so um, when it comes to contacts, that presents an issue. And so I went to this one eye doctor and he said, I got the perfect fit for you. He said, you can wear regular contacts that will help you see, and then you can get reading glasses so when you have to read, then you can wear them. Now, in my mind, I thought, I came in here because I don't want glasses. But he says, that's the best we can do for you. So I got reading glasses. And so then when I came to preach up here with a Bible and with notes, I was having my reading glasses on. I'd take them off to talk and I'd take, put them back on to read. And, take, you know, and I was doing this through the whole thing. And I, occasionally I'd throw them out into the deal accidentally and somebody had to bring them up. I went back to him. I said, this ain't working. I can't do that. He said, it's all I can tell you. So I went to a different eye doctor. And he said, I have the perfect fit for you. I'm a little skeptical by that, don't making some judgments here. Nobody's helped me so far. He said, I have the perfect fit for you. He said, I'm going to give you one contact that will help you read, and the other contact that will help you see in the distance. And I thought to myself, that sounds crazy. And he said, your brain will pick up the difference. And so when you need to read, your brain will automatically make the switch so that the one that you have, which is my left one that I read with, immediately your brain will pick that up and you'll see through that eye and not through the other one. And then when you're driving and you need to see out there, then your other part of your brain will pick that up and you'll see through that eye. Now see, he's making the assumption that I had a brain, and you couldn't blame him for that. I just started with him. But in the process of all of that, he sold me on that idea. And even to this day, I try to do that. I have those kind of contacts. But what I found is, some days, my brain doesn't make that switch so well. You with me? And so when I try to read and my right eye, which is supposed to be my dominant eye, I'm told, when it picks up down here, I don't see it. That's why sometimes you'll see me up here doing, doing this. And then finally, I get Spencer to put it on the screen back there so I can read it from a distance, okay? Now, I want you to take that perspective with my inability sometimes to make the switch. And let's say that now I'm going to go in... And I'm going to do some kind of detailed machine work or mechanicing work on something, an engine at my house. If I can't see where the screw is, I can't get it right. 
If I can't see what the gap on the spark plug is supposed to be, I can't get it right. So what Jesus is saying is in that kind of situation, because that's the reality for me, I don't need to be going out trying to tell other people what they need to do as far as mechanic and as far as eye stuff goes. You can't get it right yourself. Don't be judging other people on that. That's the picture. A self-righteous root that flowers out into criticism and condemnation. Now tell me, that's not a big part of the church of the 21st century in America. In many cases, many places, Christians are known more for what they're against than what they're for. The video just before I got up, how terrible is it that the majority of the searches that people do about Christianity come up with negative stuff? Jesus is saying that while we want to focus on the other person's problems... We need to be focusing on our own instead. Now, I do want you to see, this is really important. I do want you to see that Jesus leaves the door open for helping our brother with sawdust in his eye. Did you see that? Look back to those first few verses. Verse 3. Why do you see the speck that's in your brother's eye, but don't notice the log that's in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is the log in your own? You hypocrite first... Take the log out of your eye and then you will be able to take the speck out of your brother's eye. In other words, he moves us to a point of ministry as opposed to judgmentalism. In other words, take care of your own business. And when you've taken care of your own business, you are better equipped to help somebody else who has the same problem. But then it's not condemnatory, and then it's not criticism. Then it's ministry, because it's rooted in grace. Nobody gets ministry like somebody who's been ministered to. This self-focus that we need, it enables us to help them rather than to condemn them and to criticize them and where they are. Cecil Rhodes, most of us don't know the name. He was a British financier and he was also a diplomat. He's the guy whose fortune is used now to fund those things we call Rhodes Scholarships. He was a stickler for proper attire. And I mean a stickler for that. You shouldn't go anywhere if you look sloppy, kind of was his deal. And so, from time to time, he would uh, deal with people who didn't have that same approach and how he dealt with them is one thing. But in this particular case, he threw a dinner party, invited this guy to come to the dinner party who lived a long ways off. As a matter of fact, for him to get there, he had to take a train and several connections. Well, over the course of this day of travel for this one guy, uh, he had several delays with the trains and he was late for the dinner engagement. And all these other people were there and they were dressed to the nines, a full-scale formal business type uh, dinner. And uh, this guy was late getting there, and somebody came and told Cecil Rhodes that he was late, and uh, he was late, and he was late. And finally, the guy showed up, but he had not had any time to change his clothes. So he was in his traveling clothes. He was unkempt, and he was not smelling all that great. Uh, absolutely no way to attend one of Cecil Rhodes' dinner parties. Didn't have any choice. He was already late. Went to the door, gave him the, his credentials, and they let him in. 
And he immediately started looking for Cecil Rhodes so that he could go apologize to him for being late and for looking the way he did. But he couldn't find Rhodes anywhere in the party. After about 15 minutes, he noticed across the room when Cecil Rhodes made his entrance into the room. But instead of having on his nice dinner party attire, Rhodes was dressed in an old crumpled, thread-worn blue suit. Wrinkled. Totally out of character for him. This guy started making his way to Cecil Rhodes, but instead Rhodes was making his way to him and he caught him and he said, I heard about your dilemma today and I didn't want you to feel out of place. So I went and changed into something more comfortable. That's the picture of grace. That's the picture of one who understands the predicament of the other person. And can look past the desire to criticize them and instead reach out to minister to them. That's the picture. That's the picture of a disciple who has surpassing righteousness. Why is this such a problem for us? Well, the answer to that is that we gain a false sense of protection when we criticize other people makes us feel better about ourselves. But our criticism then shows our own failure to understand sin and grace. So if you come up against somebody who has a critical spirit and everybody they talk about is how bad they are, or how ugly they are, or how bad they dress, or those kinds of things, or how much better they are than other people, that's somebody who doesn't understand sin and grace. And so they have to tear other people down in order to make themselves feel better. Jesus says, there's no place for that in the Christian life. Stop doing that. You see, when I focus on you and all of your negative traits, I don't have to worry about me anymore. Jesus says, you got it backwards. Focus on yourself. So, here's why I think this is such a big deal for us today. In the church in America today. I think this is a big deal for us because it's a big deal for God. Jesus, at this point in the sermon, when he's about to turn and start wrapping the whole sermon up, he stops long enough to say, hey, we need to get this right. And the reason we need to get it right is because of this surpassing righteousness and the salt and the light that he said we are to be in a lost world. We stand out. In a positive way, when we are dispensers of grace rather than condemnation. Judgmentalism and this double standardism in religion divides us. Divides us on a personal level. Divides us on a corporate level. And ultimately, we cannot keep the second great commandment. While harboring a critical spirit. Did you hear that? Let me make sure you get it again. Even though it's in front of you there on the screen. We cannot keep the second great commandment. Which is love other people. You can't keep that if you harbor a critical spirit. We have to get it right. Let me pause. I'll close just about done. But I think it's really timely that I say this. Our... Local culture is on trial now on a national level because of the actions of a few people in Coons. 
Somebody asked me this morning what I think about that. I think it's good and I think it's bad. The good thing is, and I always will hold to this, when we feel like God says to us as God's people, you take a stand on this. It's good when we take a stand when he says take a stand. And I want to commend those people who are part of that. One of ours saw an extensive news article in part of the, the widening circle here. One of our own adults here taking a stand visibly and verbally beyond that. I love that, that God's people say, hey, we're going to take a stand. But let me tell you, please hear this in the right spirit. You have to know, especially you teenagers here. You have to know that whenever you take a stand for Jesus Christ, the devil's going to take a shot. It is dangerous territory to go to war against a culture that embraces non-Christianity. I affirm you in taking up the battle. But I am concerned for you as you do so. Make sure that as you take those stands, and this is to the rest of us as a whole, make sure that it's not a cause. Make sure that it's because Jesus Christ said, make me famous, not the cause. Those people who will stand against our rights. By the way, Christians should never fight for your rights. You don't have any rights if I understand it right. Jesus says, come to me and die and be my disciple. But those people who would stand against Christianity, they don't get this love people stuff. And if we don't show them, they'll never get it. And so what we have is a perfect opportunity to take a stand and say, isn't our God incredible? So much so that I'm willing to live for him, even if it costs me. But you can't tear them down in taking that stand. Jesus says, stop judging. In a sermon like this, by the way, I started off by saying a critical spirit costs us in many ways. A sermon like this invariably splits us into two groups. There are those people in the congregation hearing a message like this who are going to say, I've been one who's been hurt by Christians who have judgmental spirits. And there's going to be that other group who are going to be the Christians who have hurt people because they have a judgmental spirit. And my suspicion is that each of us fit both. Let's pray. The question is, what do you do with it? Father, we come before you in desperate need of grace. None of us have lived in such a way that we have the right to stand up say some of these things, especially not me. We're all in need of grace. We're all sinners. We 
we've all hurt people with our condemnatory attitudes and, and even our words. We laugh it off and say it's part of our culture. It's part of who we are. It's part of what we grew up with. And you say it's sin. So give us a good heaping dose of grace, Father, please. But as you do so, we ask you that you would really instill in in us our calling to be agents of grace as well. To reach with love. To reach with compassion. Because of what you've done for us and what we know you seek to do for those very people that we condemn. us to make you famous. Help us to turn the tide of this society that sees Christians as people who get in the way. Judgmental, narrow-minded, idiotic. that you change us and through us change this world. 